Welcome to White Collar Briefly, a Perkins Coie mini-pod. Delivered in short doses, this mini-podcast features informal, on-topic discussions with in-house experts, outside counsel, and other thought leaders on a wide array of cutting-edge and practical white-collar and compliance topics. Visit PerkinsCoie.com for more information on our nationally ranked white-collar and investigations practice. On this episode of White Collar Briefly, Perkins Coie partners Marcus Funk and Kevin Feldes speak with Corey Norton, Vice President for Supply Chain Legality at the World Wildlife Fund, about the important role that NGOs can play in corporate supply chain compliance. Corey explains how WWF and other NGOs engage with corporations to help them improve traceability within their supply chains and to better understand and mitigate risks related to everything from forced labor to environmental degradation. Ultimately, corporations and outside corporate counsel can and should actively work together on this important, complex, and still evolving area of corporate compliance. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Perkins Coie LLP and should not be considered legal advice. Corey, welcome to White Collar Briefly. It is exciting to have you on our show. And let me start out by asking sort of a very basic question, which is, you know, we, we talk to a lot of lawyers, we talk to a lot of in-house lawyers, a lot of private practitioners. I'm very confident in saying we've not talked to anyone from the World Wildlife Fund. And so one of the questions that we as more pedestrian lawyers, of course, wonder is what does it mean to be VP of supply chain legality at the World Wildlife Fund? Can you give us sort of a a sense of what your role entails, what your daily work looks like. Thank you for having me. Very nice to be here with you. I'd say in a snapshot, I don't know when I began my legal career that I saw this necessarily as a manifestation, but it's actually turned out to be a really great fit between a couple decades as uh, outside counsel to large global corporations as well as in-house counsel, and now coupling with the resources and different experiences that those skills bring within an NGO sector. But I, uh, the overview of what I do, I, I sit within our what we call our markets team, which generally engages with companies on their various conservation goals. The markets team is uh, largely made up of individuals with private sector skills. I, I'm legal. We have several in finance, procurement, management operations, et cetera, engaging corporations. But my particular aspect of that work is that I engage supply chains on their compliance with laws, uh, particularly laws that have some kind of environmental impact. So a lot of work on understanding the laws, practices to carry them out, tools to work towards compliance, and also working with the regulators on uh, effective scope of laws, administrative laws, and that sort of overall package that leads to a supply chain free of these kinds of environmentally harmful illegality. For those of us who are not initiated into the World Wildlife Fund or have know about it but don't know the structure, can you give us a sense of how the organization is structured? Is it a, a global organization with a headquarters somewhere? Is it a are they autonomous sort of geographic regions? And where do you fit in to this structure? If one wanted to make an analogy to a global corporation, the uh, the main parent is in Switzerland, and there's a lot of uh, global functions managed uh, from Switzerland. But the, it is an organization with a, a global footprint and organizations in uh, numerous countries around the world. The organizations within each country generally have their own operations and work often independent, but independently, but there is a lot of collaboration among topics. Worldwide, 
the work is generally divided into common conservation goals, such as working on wildlife, land, water, oceans, etc., with influence teams dealing with markets and governance and that sort of thing. But so within those general streams of work, each national office typically engages in some aspect of the work, often on their own, often with their own partners, but often as a global network as well. In terms of the supply chain work you do, are we talking about World Wildlife Fund goods and services that are used by the organization or, or what are we, what specifically, what specific supply chains are you uh, charged with uh, supervising and ensuring integrity of? Not supply chains for products that the World Wildlife Fund uses. Um, our work, mine specifically with supply chains, is with the corporate actors in supply chains who are making something to sell in a given market. And uh, along the supply chains, as your, your listeners likely experience in their own lives, there, there are lots of different companies that serve various roles. So I, I tend to work in commodities, largely food or soft commodities like cotton and things of that sort. Supply chains typically will, they'll be a, they'll be a part of the supply chain for the resource growth or extraction, processing steps, distribution steps, final product manufacturing, eventual supply to a, a, a corporate partner, a retailer or a brand in the EU or the US in the given market. So our work is with, depending upon the supply chain, one or many of those companies along the supply chain that have a role in the fi final product uh, making it to market. And how do you come in contact with these companies? In other words, is it through the World Wildlife Fund that they have a relationship with and kind of agreements with? Or how is it that you come into contact with companies that, say, let's say, are involved in, in, in the use and, and manufacturing of cotton materials? Long before I came on board, a, a key part of the WWF's work has been this type of engagement with companies on, on some aspect of their conservation mission. So a company might look to WWF for its scientific knowledge on better plastics use or better water use. So, so there, there's long been engagement with companies where our, our knowledge serves a benefit for whatever that is they're trying to achieve. So there are long-term, great, long-standing corporate relationships that, that pre-exist me and that my skill set you know, fits into and, and furthers uh, the relationship. That said, having been in various industries for you know, about two decades, I, I, I do come with my own relationships. Most recently, having been in-house counsel at a, at a global seafood company, my relationships in the seafood industry um, come with me and, and, and those partnerships also overlap with companies working with WWF. So that and those relationships are very, again, from that same model I lay it out of the producers in Southeast Asia, for example, all the way through the retailers and brands in the United States or, or elsewhere. So it's a combination, legacy and also part of my professional background as well. So Corey, speaking of professional background, I wanted to touch on that before we jump into the substance any further. Today we're going to be talking about, and we already are, the role of of NGOs, of non-governmental organizations, such as WWF in the corporate supply chain and in compliance. But I'm really curious, and I think it, it's going to help shed light on the value that you add, to learn a little bit about how you got to where you are. I think you mentioned a couple of things. You mentioned that you worked in private practice, you were in-house, and now you're with an NGO. 
both Marcus and I were you know, prior government attorneys, and here we are today, uh, fortunate to help companies from the private sector in the supply chain. How did you, what was your path? How did you get to where you are, and how does that help you do your job now? I'm based in Washington, D.C., and I've, I've been here for just about two decades or so. I, I, I was originally very motivated by a mentor who was a judge in the Court of International Trade, and international trade really interested me, where goods come from, who's behind them, how they made restrictions for getting into the country, et cetera. So I, I originally came to Washington, D.C. to be a, a trade lawyer, and I worked in large firms for many years on a variety of trade practices. Over time, my focus w- was more and more with uh, U.S. market access requirements, and more and more those requirements tied in social or environmental uh, requirements for the supply chains. So particularly going back a five years plus, there's a greater focus on U.S. Customs being required to scrutinize whether supply chains had forced labor in them or NOAA scrutinizing whether seafood imports were traceable. And I also happened to be working in a, a group that had a client base that was heavy in seafood companies that not only had a reputational interest in complying with these areas for to, to, to satisfy you know their customers and their place in the world, but also to ensure business continuity, they had to comply. So that combination of skills, certainly the skills were developed in, in, in the big firms, you know, as you probably work with your junior attorneys and I was a long time ago, the experience, the knowledge of the law, the knowledge of how companies operate, what's important to them, how to translate the law to their practices, you know, et cetera merged with a point in time where you had changing laws and a client base that had a particular need. I think keeping an eye out for that combination allowed me to focus even more and then uh, you know, an in-house uh, relationship grew from that. I think I'd, I'd, I'd say the highlights for me and what it brings today is one, a, a strong regulatory skill set. So you know, really having an expertise in the law and, and how to use that expertise to guide you in, in new areas and your own intuition, how to build new areas, an understanding of industry, um, how supply chains operate, how, how business operates, what's important to business and how the law is going to best translate into what business needs, but with real effect. So what I'd say that private sector expertise now coupled with the opportunity to focus those skills even more so on the social or environmental uh, outcome is an exciting recipe for me. Yeah, no, that that's great. Well, it sounds like you've been on the forefront of supply chain compliance and you've been working in this area for a long time. That leads me to the question of if you were at the forefront a decade ago, are, are we still at the forefront? Um, where are we, meaning where are companies, where are regulators, where are lawyers in the scheme of supply chain compliance? Is this still a very, you know, initial stages? Are we in the middle? Where, where are we? I would say we are still in the beginning phase of how social and environmental issues find their place in supply chain legal requirements and how companies comply with them. There's a ton of work being done, but how it all fits together is still being fleshed out. And maybe just in in short, what I would say is part of what's unique now, or going back, say, five years, is, I mean, certainly there have been environmental laws along for a long, around for a long time, and a lot of your colleagues and others work in these areas, and they're, and they're not clean air, clean water, et cetera, are not areas that, that I'm focusing on. But the direct integration of a supply chain performance requirement as a condition for being able to sell or import into the United States, for example, is a really big lever for the government to, to, 
to encourage certain practices in the supply chain. And, and I think it's, it's fairly unique around the world. Other jurisdictions around the world are trying to get at supply chain performance on environmental and social areas, but making supply chain performance a key requirement for the ability to import is, is a huge motivator. So, so I'd say that lever is still developing, but the procedures and evidentiary standards are, are still being evaluated. And a one last thing I'd say is, I certainly say corporate commitments in these areas have existed for quite a long time, but as we focus more on what's happening in the supply chains, we inevitably deal with conduct far, far away, and that makes it more and more difficult for corporations to have visibility, have leverage, et cetera. So we're seeing that the need for new practices, new relationships with your suppliers, and new tag teaming with NGOs to develop tools, have intelligence on the ground, et cetera. So um, new legal drivers is certainly driving new practices and, and alliances around the world. And uh, Corey, you know, you and I discussed previously supply chain compliance and particularly the, the these emerging norms relating to forced labor. And I remember when I left the government some 10, 11 years ago, and I, I suggested that our firm start up a supply chain compliance program that had a fo- focus on forced labor, there was a lot of skepticism, frankly, early on thinking, you know, there were no California dis- Transparency and Supply Chains Act, disclosure requirements. There was no UK Modern Slavery Act. There were no FAR regs on um, suppliers to the government. And so it was very much a greenfield type legal environment. And now, you know, 10, 11 years later, we've seen a lot of change in the, in the, um, in the laws that are on the books. But, but as you point out, uh, we're still dealing with things that are, are emerging and norms that are emerging. And in a way, you can look at the FCPA, right? You mentioned that bribery is far, far away, or rather that uh, forced labor issues are far, far away. So is bribery. And, and for about 30 years, nothing really happened much with the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act until certain enforcement actions brought it to the national attention and to the attention of, of boards and, and other folks in the in the corporate world. So from the WWF's perspective, why has forced labor, and we obviously, maybe environmental issues become it's immediately obvious why environmental issues would matter to the WWF, but why do forced labor issues, slavery, indentured servitude, coerced labor, child labor, traffic labor, why do those things matter to the WWF? I think the issue of forced labor drives nonprofit and business responses that are very much aligned and have mutual vested interests to achieve mutual but but different interests to some extent. And, and, and what I mean by, by that is on the environmental side, I think there's, if there's not yet a consensus, there's certainly a growing understanding among environmental organizations that pursuing conservation, it, it doesn't it doesn't help or it's undermined or you haven't achieved really a goal if your efforts are harming people or if the efforts don't work for people. So while you're pursuing a conservation goal, if if you if you turn your back on forced labor in the in the conservation area, that's really not, you know, what morally defensible what one wants to do. But I think in terms of conservation itself, there's also a pretty clear understanding that that certain types of illegality, forced labor in particular, exacerbate and accelerate environmental harm. So when you want to talk about natural resource usage, you know, in excess of laws or in illegal ways, illegal natural or excessive natural resource usage is just exacerbated by illegal workforces, for example. So, so there's a tie between one and the other. I'd also say increasingly we understand as climate change has more of environmental impact, the likelihood of forced labor and, and atrocities like that occurring 
learning increases. So, so there's a there's a direct environmental tie there. Where I think the corporate relationships make a lot of sense is that you know for corporations, it's not only a reputational concern uh, among customers, increasingly among their investors, but as we were just describing, not having adequate oversight can lead to uh, unexpected supply chain disruption by having your imports banned. So the right practices in supply chains are needed for both purely environmental purposes, but also purely business purposes. Unfortunately, the communities, I think, uh, share both. And now you you obviously have the, the experience, unique experience of having been at a, a big law firm, having been in-house and also not being at the WWF. And I think what you're describing, the dynamics here, which is, and something I know Kevin and I have observed in our prior roles with the government, is that criminals and, 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 and bad actors tend not to isolate their bad acts to one particular area. So it's not a surprise that folks who, are, for example, would engage in illegal mining might also engage in bribery to bribe the people who are the inspectors and, and also engage forced labor to engage or to, to conduct the illegal mining. So in other words, you have sort of this trifecta of bad conduct. And we, we just discussed you have a lot of laws in the U.S. and a lot of laws in, internationally that are coming online that are focused on supply chain issues discreetly. But it still seems that, you know, the, that forced labor is not getting the same amount of attention. A lot of people talking about it in Hollywood and elsewhere. But when it comes to enforcement, when it, when it comes to the boardroom, that Issues relating to forced labor and manufacturing still haven't quite percolated up to the top and are getting the same level of attention as some of the other issues like that you mentioned, like environmental issues are getting. Why, why do you think that it, well, first of all, do you agree with that that claim? And then secondly, why do you think that is and, and what do you think it'll take to change the current perception of where forced labor sits in terms of, you know, how, how companies are incentivized to to address compliance concerns. I do think the assessment is correct. You have, for example, you know, in 2015, around 2016, AP and Guardian exposés about uh, forced labor in Thai seafood supply chains caught a lot of retailers' attention and, and prompted immediate action. And yet, I think it's well known that this circumstances that required investigation in Thailand aren't unique to Thailand. You see them in many other countries, but the same attention hasn't taken off. You've seen for several years petitions to U.S. Customs to look at palm oil forced labor in Malaysia, for example, and, and that hasn't taken off. And we have, as of last week, I believe it was, a new AP expose. So we'll have to see if that drives things. So certainly disproportionate um, attention to the issues, depending upon region, commodity, name of company involved, you know, et cetera. So, so there definitely is uh, disparities there. One explanation, I think, from just the definitions of the law and the way the law is operated is that on, on one hand, I, I have sympathy for companies trying to do the right thing. Companies are under tons of demands and being an in-house person, departments are spread thin and, and have not always all the expertise they might want. You know, your legal department, your compliance department, your procurement, your logistics, everybody is, is fairly say that on the whole, people are working hard on doing their job. That doesn't mean they're necessarily CSR or forced labor experts. So there's a certain degree of the topics evolving. So I, I appreciate that corporations are not currently always in the place to, to be on top of the issue, but you alluded to the change in FCPA enforcement and when penalties started, you know, really ratcheting up. I hate to say to a certain extent, the, the, the dual development of clear active enforcement with real business bottom line 
does put these areas higher on the priority list. You know, you, you don't want to promote in a world where everybody walks around with a big stick, but but that does make a big difference. But I think even more importantly is uh, clarity in the law and, and what a company has to do to comply and to ensure that if it is ever investigated, it, it has done everything it needs to do to prove it's compliant. And, I, and I've, I've seen in-house counsel over and over again be very open. Just tell me what I have to do. What What is the roadmap? And, and we don't have that right now in the forced labor area. We, we have very sincere efforts by the U.S. government to try to understand and to bring enforcement cases. They're not quite at a magnitude that I think is prompting, you know, that highest level of tension, but also the law does not lay out the roadmap clearly in the way a company is looking for to, to know what it has to do. You know, one of the things that we've we've observed in, in as part of our practice is that really the thing that companies are worried about the most is brand damage, right? In other words, sure, there could be enforcement. We haven't seen it in the California Transparency and Supply Chains Act by the Attorney General of California. We haven't seen it in the UK under the UK uh, Modern Slavery Act by the by the uh, Home Office, and we we haven't seen it by the federal regulators or the the, the various inspector generals who deal with uh, the federal acquisition regulations and when it comes to providing goods and services to the U.S. government, the largest purchaser of goods and services in the world. So the focus tends to be on brand damage. And one of the things that we've observed is that there has been, it seems to be a shift that issues relating to CSR, corporate social responsibility and forced labor often were housed under the marketing department in a lot of companies. In other words, you look at the CSR page and it's essentially put together by the marketing team. And there seems to be a shift that it's moving towards uh, the legal function, that the legal function is actually now more and more responsible for making sure that the public disclosures are accurate that there's you're not creating unnecessarily legal, uh, unnecessary legal liability or legal risk have you observed that type of a shift and do you think that is an appropriate way for companies to view where csr and forced labor should be housed within their own structures i think a better balance is real regular tag teaming between not only CSR and legal, but also procurement. And and what what I see happening often is you know a company recognizes these issues and wants to invest, and they build a CSR team. And 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 quite typically, that the issues in a supply chain require industry collaboration, so a pre collaborative effort. The CSR personnel spend a lot of time traveling around the world, meeting with other colleagues to build a, a, you know trade association or collaborative effort where suppliers and and customers talk to each other about how we're going to how we're going to monitor ourselves. You get to a point where you want the CSR folks with their CSR counterparts, you know, hammer out codes and, and, and vetting mechanisms. Then they want to come back and talk to their, you know, their, their, their corporate family about their participation. But I see too often that, uh, you know, again, in the vein that everybody's running a million miles a minute and everybody's quite busy, but I don't think you always see built into that CSR outreach, the, 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 the corporate tag teaming to know, well, it, I've, I've now learned from the NGOs what the issue is and what the practices are, but is this going to work for my procurement team, both logistically or whatever our bottom line issues are? And, and I'm all for companies being pressured and to do the right thing and to change more rapidly. But I think success needs not only the CSR thinking, but the procurement folks need to understand it 
almost as well and need to work together about what, what works for their buying practices and legal understand, needs to understand it almost as well. So whether one or the other is, is the leader, I don't necessarily know is the most important issue, but, but being in sync with each other. And, and, and I think the sequence I've seen more often is that these issues come to procurement and come to legal, you know, late in the process. And so they're kind of, you know, they're on their back foot. They're trying to play catch up and it's an uncomfortable place for anybody to be. I, I do think the more procurement has a, had a chance to opine, that's really not going to work for us, but how about this modification? Or legal has had a chance to be briefed on the issues, get closer to the issues, you'll have a less likelihood that there might be a default to a more conservative position. So I, 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 if there is a gravitation towards legal becoming more involved, I think that's great. But I think those three functions, at least, and maybe more, the more they're in sync, the, the more the outside world will feel like a company is moving forward, and the more the company, I think, will feel it's achieving its goals. So we've talked about legal liability. And as a former prosecutor, I certainly know the strength of enforcement when it comes to motivating companies to to do the right thing. But Marcus and I have worked with a lot of clients who are um, way beyond just worrying about the legal risk. Uh, as Marcus mentioned, they certainly want to prevent brand damage. They want to avoid reputational risk. Let me throw in a third element here, which is, which is, I think, on the proactive side. A lot of companies are seeing the value, so it's not just legal risk, not just reputational risk, but they're actually seeing positive value in being at the forefront of the supply chain uh, compliance. And let me ask you about one thing about that. There's, you know, the, the environmental, social, and corporate governance uh, framework where investors want to actually know, are companies complying in their supply chain? Are they doing the right thing? Are, are you seeing that from the WWF end? Are you helping companies uh, get in sync so it actually increases value to their company by being in compliance? Yes, for I guess a few different reasons, but also I might say not entirely. <laughs> I think when you're in higher risk industries, being on the forefront is a minimum requirement to stay in the market. So if you're trying to sell, say you're working with foreign companies, trying to sell to big name US brands or retailers, it's come to a point where high risk suppliers need to demonstrate, I mean, these companies have their codes, so that's part of the issue, but you just need to demonstrate your compliance to, as a minimum requirement to get in. That's one aspect. I, I do think companies have seen there are cost savings you know, to a lot of extent um, of, Am I using my resources more efficiently uh, and, and things of that sort? Um, I, I, I do think that's a real factor. But I, but I think in, in compliance or just say kind of ESG, CSR, whatever kind of acronym compliance generally, the avoidance of reputational harm and all the cost of trying to uh, re repair damage there hasn't, I don't think, yet translated entirely into clearly they can profit from it and their sales. And I, I'm not I'm not sure off the cuff that should necessarily be the focus, but I think it's very difficult. It, this becomes a real issue in terms of we're asking supply chains to do a lot and who's going to pay for it. Um, and, and I think that's a current issue because I, I, you know, with with any kind of new cost, one thinks about some portion being passed on to the next stage, next buyer. And that I don't think is currently seen as flowing all the way to the consumer. And uh, so that's a struggle. I think companies are going for going with how, how do I how do I incentivize the conduct I want, but who's going to pay for it is, is something you hear from everybody in the supply chain. Yeah, who's going to pay for it? And you mentioned earlier that there's not a clear roadmap. And I suppose one of the questions that that we're all getting is how far do we need to go? If you are a, 
U.S. company and you are buying palm oil to use in your products, uh, how far do you need to go down the supply chain? And what's the extent of the issues you should be concerned about? How do you answer that question? To me, I think the, the, the short answer that I, that I would, and I can unpack different elements why, I think the answer is one needs to have responsibility for everything that comes before you all the way back up the supply chain. I, I think that's most clear for reputational reasons that, um, you know, depending on how big the expose is or the issue is, you know, you're, whether it's consumers or, or customers buying a product, the, the excuse that, that, that something really atrocious happened outside of my leverage of control is not going to mitigate your reputational harm. It's just those nuances don't, don't matter. The, I think just a matter of responsibility. One, I think if a company is invested in this issue, in this topic, there, there's no logical reason to me why one would be committed to being moral and ethical one one step of purchasing. You know, it's it's a full supply chain issue. But I think increasingly the law, say on these supply chain laws, um, is becoming more clear that the uh, requirements to say to import into the country do cover all stages of the supply chain, going back to whatever the origin of the raw material is. I, I think regulators and us helping regulators giving comments can do a better job to be more clear about that. But but that is the the, the direction I see enforcement going and you know, periodic thinking that you hear regulators express out loud. So, so I, I think it's a, I think it's just an issue of reputational control requires it. You know, there's a certain intellectual consistency, but the law is becoming more and more clear that the requirement for for somebody at the end of the supply chain is to have oversight all the way back up through the supply chain. Now, just, I don't want to minimize the difficulty, but just what that scope means. Understood. So certainly that that's the goal, and the excuse of well, I didn't know. There's going to be follow up questions to that. Well. Well, what did you do to find out? Well, tell me a little bit more about the role of WWF. We, the title of our discussion today was reevaluating the role of NGOs in corporate supply chain compliance. Uh, little anecdotes, you know, from my experience in the government, I think 20 years ago when I was first starting as a federal prosecutor uh, before joining Perkins, there was some skepticism of the government working with NGOs frankly. And I think there was skepticism among companies of working with NGOs. But I've seen that change over time. And there's a lot of realization where uh, we can all work together for a mutual benefit. So tell me a little bit more about how WWF fits into that and what you've seen. I think inherent in WWF's existence is a, is a scientific, broad scientific expertise. Um, and a lot of the issues we're talking about, you know, are, are directly tied to science. Um, I, I think there's also a broad network than that an NGO brings, I mean, particularly about WWF of knowing what are the resources that are out there. Um, there is the credibility to you know, speak with government in a different way that you mentioned. But I, but I, I think what I would summarize is, and I, I could give you maybe some anecdotes of what I saw from this in the corporate world, it doesn't apply to every single NGO, but there are plenty of them to which it does apply that there's an expertise that's unique and a credibility that's unique that will, will meet frankly, purely corporate needs in different times in a corporation's life. So take, for example, a company um, that is really under fire because of an expose, you know, and, and its its reputation is, um, you know, the harm is spinning out of control. There, there have been times that I've seen that bringing an NGO into your operations may be the only way to slow that down and reverse the tide. So, for example, you see one of the really big topics in uh, um, 
manufacturing in, in Southeast Asia right now is how do we ensure that migrant labor is treated appropriately? And the main issue there is um, modern slavery involving uh, indebtedness that somebody can never get out of, for example. I think what I've seen through a, a lot of factories uh, in Southeast Asia is really that they don't have the resources necessarily or the expertise to know how to understand a migrant's journey or to vet indebtedness and things of that sort. So bringing an NGO that speaks the migrants' languages, that, that has knowledge of their home communities, et cetera, bringing the NGO into your operations is, is, is often the only way to be able to connect with them and to understand their, their circumstance. And it, so there's, there's the actual capacity of what the NGO brings. And then assuming it's the right NGO, there's a credibility that goes back out to your customers, to government investigators, you know, et cetera. So, so I think those kind of examples are, are what you're seeing more and more. I, 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 I do agree there's the sensitivity of, you know, a company does want to, a company under fire might recognize the difficulty it's in, but it also wants to keep its information controlled. So I think how NDAs play into that and having the right kind of partner are, are really key and I'm sensitive to that. So, so I guess just the last thing, I, I think while recognizing that either say WWF itself brings expertise and credibility, whether it's an engagement we might provide, we sit at tables all around the world. So we know, I think, of a greater variety of type of NGOs and potential NGO partners. I, I, I do think it matters having the right partner who understands business, understands what you're trying to do and, and, and that you trust. I, I do think those are, are key factors. I, I think that's a fantastic point. I, I've worked overseas and sat in some of those rooms and the insights that NGOs have of really what's going on in the local communities is amazing. It's things that you just can't get, certainly can't get from sitting um, here in the corporate boardroom or in my law office. You can't even get it by sitting in the capital city of the country. You really need to be out there living in the communities, talking with the people, seeing seeing how people are being forced to work. It, it's really amazing. And so I, I think that's a point that really needs to be emphasized. NGOs are really out there on the ground and you're working with the local communities knowing what's going on. So really good point. One of the things I'll say just from experience, I, I, I don't think any NGO wants to be considered, you know, uh, an outside service provider in perpetuity. You know, the, I think the hope is that that your corporate counterparts, you, you're helping develop the capacity either in a company or in its trade association, et cetera. But I think there's a lot of hope for that. I mean, just what you're, when you're talking, it made me remember, so I, you know, started as a, uh, you know, typical uh, Washington DC associate, you spend a lot of time in a, in a in an office in a nice building downtown, and particularly a regulatory lawyer. You know your head's in the books quite a bit, particularly with technical technical regulations. You know you, you think you understand what what it means, but it's really until you get out there and get in the field and you and you look at the actual application, wh wh however a manufacturing floor is set up or logistics are set up, whatever. You know the law begins to make sense. What's what's this regulation trying to get at? And you, and you connect the dots, and you're a better lawyer. I, I think the same thing applies as you're engaging with just experts of any sort. You know you work with you know forensic accountants, different kinds of investigators. I mean I mean companies are are hiring outside support in all different kinds of ways. To some extent, NGOs aren't too different, maybe with a little bit of difference that the hope is that knowledge will transfer into your people and, and it's uh, really with the intent of building greater capacity in the company. And, and I, I like your sense of getting out there and engaging and having others kind of show you what's going on. I, I, I think just in our law careers, we naturally absorb some portion of that expertise and, and whether we're outside counsel or in-house counsel, then add more value and, and, and can do a lot of this then ourselves without always having to rely on an NGO, for example. 
And let me kind of offer up what I'll call a practitioner's tip, and then, Corey, you can tell me if you agree or not and, and, and whether you've seen this dynamic in practice. One of the things that we've dealt with in the past are situations where a large company under fire will hire an NGO, and that NGO will then essentially conduct a investigation of the allegations of misconduct, and I have a particular one in mind, but let's just say it's a forced labor issue. And the NGO will then issue a report in which they find either misconduct or no misconduct and, and trace out sort of how the situation occurred. Now, I know probably in, in your mind and in Kevin's mind right now, the alarm bell's already going off because what we don't have there is careful coordination between the legal function and the NGO. Most of the folks at NGOs, particularly the ones that are sort of in the field, are not lawyers. And they're basically human rights advocates who have a certain perspective on how the world works. And so one of the things that we've had to fix in some instances, and I'm not talking about the WWF here, not at all, but in, with other NGOs, is our situations where basically the NGO with no legal privilege, no coordination with in-house counsel, or as you know, obviously outside the United States, outside counsel is where you can establish privilege in-house counsel. In Germany, for example, there is no privilege for in-house counsel that you then uh, have situations where you have folks creating uh, bad documents or creating files that conduct illegal legal analysis. And in this case, I'm thinking of, they said that the uh, that the company at issue violated the federal acquisition regulations, but they used the wrong version of the FAR and therefore got it wrong as a matter of law. And now they have a document that could be obviously discoverable in litigation. So again, not to get too in the weeds about, you know, from a practitioner's perspective on how to protect the company. But circling back to, to turn this into a question, is that a dynamic that you've seen? Is that something the WWF thinks about or worries about? And how have you seen companies effectively coordinate things so that the protection of privilege, which obviously can be waived if the company wants to, but that the protection of privilege applies and the company is not exposed to additional legal risk? I think this area is one that's a work in progress of, of how to strike the balance to meet everybody's interests. I, I've, I've, I've seen the kind of NGOs you're talking about that, uh, you know, to no fault of theirs, they might not appreciate the corporate sensitivities and they were never handled and then everybody's kind of caught off guard once the disclosures happened. On the other end of the spectrum, I've seen NGOs with really great expertise recognize or, or at least th their, their reflection on their mission is to build capacity within a company. And, uh, and they've, I've seen NGOs be willing to sign complete NDAs that we would like to report out on this. We'd like to do some kind of abstraction. But um, frankly, if you're not happy with uh, the results, if we find really dirty stuff that's going to be too harmful to you, we are willing to not mandate that we publish those, those details. Now, that, I wouldn't say that's common, that's a, that's a, but I, I, I cite it as, I think there is some recognition that for certain kinds of functions, protecting the company, assuming it's taking your advice and making change is the is the greater goal. I think most work probably is somewhere in the middle that 
a lot of NGO work as, as it's funded has a publication mandate for the NGO's own funding. So, so they're in a difficult position. But I do believe there are, um, there's a good middle ground. There are a lot of reporting structures that I've seen where one reports out, you know, abstractions without, depending upon the number of factories, number of companies you're working with. Maybe there's a report out via the trade association that you're working with. And so there's, so there's a benefit that the, the world that's interested in the in the segment of the economy gets to see the performance, but it's not attributed to any one company. I, I, I don't mean to diminish the, the the difficulty and and the feeling after the fact that maybe companies felt like too much went out, NGOs feel like we're not being as public as we want to be. But I but I do think one could can get there. But but I think it from the outset, it it requires a mentality by the NGO that we're here for change and we need everybody to buy into that. But we're also here to build with the company and we need to be forceful, but we at least need to be mindful and know whether we can work within within their framework. So, so I, I think feeling that out is something I've seen happen. I wouldn't want to say with, you know, Great frequency, but but I but I think it's a critical skill, and and NGOs that can strike that balance will be invited deeper into a company's operations, and and thereby I think have even that much greater effect. And from your perspective, when you look at the way NGOs function, including the WWF, what we've seen is sometimes they're they essentially are hired like a vendor. In other words, we need help in Southeast Asia in this one particular country in this one particular industry. Well, let's say it's the seafood industry. We believe you have a particular knowledge in the seafood industry, and so we want to hire you to help us understand better the situations on the ground and how what went wrong with our our supply chain, how that happened, and how we can fix it. So essentially, you're a vendor, and I think that's where my concerns about privilege and making sure it's all coordinated in a way that they're, that the vendor is essentially providing facts so that the lawyers can, can provide legal advice and, and, and aid of litigation. That's one model. The other model is almost like as an ombudsperson, right, that the, the NGO essentially is a clean hands observer, a neutral arbiter, and comes in and makes determinations and then reports that out. Do you have a sense of, I mean, are most of the NGOs you see and work with available to do one or both of those functions? Are there NGOs that will only be essentially retained as a vendor? I use the term vendor, but that's kind of what it is. Or that only report out, or or are there comp- are there NGOs that do both in a, a kind of a hybrid? And to the extent that that question made any sense, maybe you can also tell us where the WWF fits in uh, in, in those polarities. No, it does make sense, and I think their answer is all the above. That there are NGO, and and on a personal note, I think they all serve a purpose, and I, and I think they all should exist. You know, there are the campaigners and the activists, all the way down to the you know the technicians who are who are really just there to to help fix something. And 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 I think the greatest struggle is for those who are in the middle. That there certainly are NGOs, say on the social side, there are a couple. Actually, there aren't very many that I can think of. There are a couple that stand out whose expertise on how to protect human rights is is top notch but whose understanding of how to integrate that into companies is also top-notch. That's not a common overlap. Those NGOs, I think, struggle with how do I investigate and report, but then also be a consultant um, to help change. And they get a lot of flack and, and it's just, um, I don't think there's any way around it. And they just have to be satisfied with their own integrity. I think the WWF is is more in the middle where I think the overall idea is to be guide companies, push them and point out, press where changes are needed, 
not with a necessarily off the cuff a campaigning, not trying to burn anybody, not trying to make anybody uh, look bad. It be sure the pressure is there, but with a real intent that we want to understand your practices, bring expertise, change your practices, preferably in a way that's scalable. So it's not just one. I don't think you see. I don't think the vision of a WWF is to. I, I understand the vendor analogy, and I think one has to try to avoid that. Put a priority on projects where the conservation outcome is clear, you know, and and, and is scalable, and its skill sets are and apply others. So I think you have to, uh, and I, th- I think that's what a lot of WWF goes through and it's thinking of how to get involved in projects. I, I, I personally have not chosen to work at a very loud campaigning NGO. I, I'm glad they're there because they, they serve a real expose purpose. I, on a personal level, like to be at the NGO that wants to keep pressure, but also sees an opportunity to build. And, and, and I think that's appropriate too. And so if I'm a company out there and, and I've got an issue and I listen to this podcast and I say, boy, this Corey, he seems like he really has his act together. Oh, how, what, what are my next steps? I mean, do I call you up? Do I, do I call, do, you know, what, what, just very practically, how do I engage with a WWF? And then what steps do you take to decide whether or not to engage with me? Well, very practically, I'm always open to being contacted. And I know my, my colleagues within WWF and our sort of peer um, NGOs as well. Um, so there's no harm in in reaching out, and I and I think the way that conversation goes is one wants to know what the nature of the issue is. Does it align with the conservation message? You want to get some feeling of how sincere the corporation is. What what is their outcome? What are they really trying to change? And from that, is there an overlap in missions here so that you don't just feel you're doing you don't want to don't want to be a vendor. You want to be you know pursue conservation goals. So I think that the nature of what a company needs is going to dictate what the path there is. You know, I think most companies, big companies, know a lot of the issues. They might need expertise in how to carry out a particular issue. Just as I was saying earlier, uh, often what's really needed is using your footprint and your network um, around the world. How can we work together to deal with this far issue far away? So say just across all kinds of industries, migrant labor is is a huge issue. Recruiting agencies are a huge issue. I do think it's hard for a U.S. corporation to change, you know, five recruiting agencies deep in Southeast Asia. So I think what happens then is, well, depending on where your supply chain is and who the issues are, what what resources are we teamed up with? And and, and frankly, a lot of the partners that I work with might not be in a direct partnership with me, but I'd say... One of the advantages of going to a large worldwide organization is it's kind of like referral in a law firm to a certain extent. You know who the resources are, who who can best fit that company's needs. So, anyway, I, I think there's a there's a absolutely welcoming outreach to to talk about needs and how resources might match up. There's an honest exploration together of of what's at stake and 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 what can be teamed up, and does that meet everybody's agendas? You know, sort of a snapshot. And how about the the opposite side? And again, this is not necessarily related to the WWF, although obviously any insights you have from your experience. In other words, company comes, you affiliate with an NGO or the NGO affiliates with a company and then maybe halfway through, the NGO decides, you know, really the company is trying to use us or they're trying to use our name or they're trying to, they're not genuinely interested in this and we don't really want to be involved with them. I'm thinking it's there's some parallels to the legal practice too, where you withdraw from a case when you realize that really the the client is maybe not being fully transparent with you. Is there a diplomatic way to do that? Is there such a thing as a loud exit? You know that you have in the legal profession sometimes. How is that handled? Yeah, and I think you put your finger right on one of the main possibilities is noisy withdrawal type situations that you want. 
I think, frankly, this thinking is somewhat at the outset, and and I and I and somewhat just developing. The reason I say that is, as NGOs recognize the value of teaming up with companies, they also recognize to maintain my integrity and independence, and also to be useful. I, I need access to the real information of the company, and 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 that's never naturally going to be sensitive, and it's going to involve MDAs and, and and things of that sort. But I but I think that degree of granular. In, engagement with the company is not the norm. So I think the more that becomes the norm, the, the more we have these issues of, well, what does withdrawal look like? Uh, because you're going to see more real stuff and have to wrestle with what you're going to do with it. I think my feeling there is we need to continue to develop our practices of at the outset, knowing the risk profile in front of us and what we might be dealing with and what kind of exit we might want to protect our own integrity. I think more and more thinking along those lines has to go into it. There may be situations where quiet withdrawal and, 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 and uh, you know co-marketing agreements, for example, have uh, termination provisions and, and uh, it might just go away and that's that. But I, but I think more focus on noisy withdrawal type situations is a, is a good way to think about it. In terms of timing, Corey, we spend a lot of effort and energy talking to clients, prospective clients, and preaching the importance of compliance and getting ahead of the game, particularly in supply chains. But companies sometimes, frankly, don't always react until they think they have a problem. I imagine, and I want your thoughts on this from, from WWF, is the time to come to you when you're in the middle of a crisis? And I, you know, we think the answer is no. But how do you talk to companies about getting involved and working with you now before there is an issue to actually, you know, have time to build that relationship? And I, I think you probably intend the answer kind of, the question kind of answers itself, right? It's, you're, you're, I think you're in the same situation as a legal practice of of trying to encourage that, that proactive uh, nature. I think to some extent, the work is similar between a law firm and an NGO in that position of one wants to keep current developments in front of potential audiences uh, on a rolling basis. So I, I don't want to be, I didn't as a, as a outside attorney marketing myself, but also now I didn't want to be see someone, be seen as someone running around saying the sky is falling all the time, but there is very real information of just as you all see, I, I know day in and day out of, how a prosecutor pursues a certain case or what a proposed uh, rulemaking suggests for where the enforcement uh, attitude is going to go or what you staying close to industry and what you hear competitors starting to say or what outcome did a competitor experience for you know taking a particular position in the case or fighting an agency in a certain way. I think the more in, a, in an honest way, but a real way, we keep all those facts in front of the communities we want to serve, the, the hope is, I'm sure you guys will probably echo this, the hope is one sees the wisdom of, of getting ahead of it. But if you can't and you find, I, mean, I, I think there's a struggle now as in textile industries, they're, they're struggling with how do we, you know, if, if, if the Xinjiang forced labor issues um, really result in, you know, that whole supply being cut out, how do we deal with it? And there may just be situations where you can't retroactively fix it. But I think really disruption of supply chains or reputation of that magnitude, I think are good, I don't even want to use the word wake up, but they're, they're good ways to promote to companies the, the need to, to look into the future and, and the value of acting now. Sure. And of course, as lawyers, as you suggested, we are looking at, well, what's happening to competitors? What else is going on around the globe in terms of enforcement? 
And I imagine that as an NGO, you're getting insights and you're seeing what's coming. You may see it on a small level. It may be happening regionally or locally, but that's a good indicator, I imagine, of what might be uh, headed our way or might be headed the way of, of a company in the U.S. I, I, no, I'm glad you raised that point. It's, it's one of the, I mean, certainly for me, being a private sector person, growing into the NGO world, there are lots of my education and orientation will go on for quite a while, I'm sure, of learning the ins and outs. But one of the unique resources I have found is that you do get tied into broader and more diverse NGO networks um, that, that I wasn't tied into before. Uh, and part of that is my ears to the ground in, in a much broader and more precise way about the directions other NGOs are going, currents that are brewing, you know, and, and, and that sort of thing. So it's, it, it is a, just a different level of predicting what companies might face. And, and after all, a lot of what we're doing when we work with companies is we're helping to evaluate risk and mitigate risk and your insights can be invaluable into well here are the here are the risks that we're seeing around the world here's what's coming our way here's what's next here's what you might be missing um so i you know we see that perfect match well you know i'm really glad that you've you've highlighted all of these things and and it sounds like it really is a balancing act sometimes of preserving the reputations of all involved of really feeling like we're in this together we have a mutual goal of protecting the supply chains. I think when we look objectively, nobody would want there to be forced labor in their supply chain. Uh, I haven't met a corporate executive who would who would support that, and they don't. Uh, the challenges come in, in in figuring out ways to tackle it, to address it, that we can get our arms around and we can you know make actual progress in. Absolutely agree. I left the private sector. I, I by no means felt I was turning my back on it. I, I think I left the private sector appreciative of the relationships. Um, friends still stay in companies. Clients remain friends. But, but the idea is, I, as an individual, I think I can serve in a different way now with a different skill set and set of resources available. And, you know, I want to push maybe in different ways. But the I, I continue to be impressed by my corporate colleagues' commitments. Uh, doesn't mean I won't challenge them, but I think they're there. The people I want to work with, and I'm sure the same with you guys, are the ones who want to be at the table and, you know, Want to, might want to tangle and might have just a difference of opinion, but but they do want to do it together. And and that's, as an individual, a pr productive and rewarding place to be. Well, I, absolutely. I mean, you you have to want to get it right or we're not even in playing the same game. And, and uh, so well said on the need to work together and to have a common goal. And then, yeah, it may be hard at times, but we can get there. Well, we really appreciate the time you've taken today. Want to give you the opportunity to preview any final thoughts for us of, of where we're headed, what you're seeing before we before we sign off. Thank you both as well. Um, this has been a very enjoyable opportunity, and I, I look forward to continuing to learn from you guys. I mean, I think maybe one theme to to plant out there is I've laid out some of my visions of the uh, the benefits of uh, corporate NGO tag team as well as the struggles. But I think this grows into the best resources, the more, I want to say all sides, but bring their points of view. So I would love to continue to hear from other NGOs, NGO partners you and your clients have, but also corporations of this has worked, this hasn't worked. Do you think you can do that? I just think the more that dialogue uh, happens, the more this kind of function grows into what can really be productive. So I um, am quite selfishly would love all points of view and to, and to have those conversations uh, learn from each other and help me build this into the best resource it can be. 
Well, Corey, thank you so much for your time and for your insights into a part of the world that a lot of people probably have very little understanding of. And, and I think they have a lot more now that we've had a chance to spend the last hour or so with you. So thank you so much. And Kevin, as always, thank you. And we'll look forward to, to seeing what else you can you can do and, and all the good things that you're uh, working on and also to keeping our relationship going. Absolutely. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, guys. This concludes this episode of White Collar Briefly. Please visit whitecollarbriefly.com where you can subscribe to our blog and find additional updates on current white collar and compliance topics. White Collar Briefly, a Perkins Coie mini pod, copyright 2020 by Perkins Coie LLP. Thank you for listening.